0: You're listening to The New World Order, a podcast series from Gateway House, which observes, defines, and seeks to understand the changing political trends across the world. At present,
1: there is a breathing space. The cannons have ceased firing. The fighting has stopped, but the dangers have not stopped. If we are to form the United States of Europe, or whatever name
0: it may take, We must begin now. Welcome to the New World Order. I am your host, Deepita Vikram Singh. Last week, we discussed the changed foreign policy of the United States and the impact that it has on the international community. Today, we will be shifting to the other side of the Atlantic to take a closer look at Europe. By the mid-20th century, Europe had been the arena for the two most destructive and global conflicts in modern human history. In the formation of the post-1945 World Order, Europe found itself divided by the Cold War. As Eastern Europe was enshrouded by the USSR's Iron Curtain, Western Europe was bolstered by the United States. The future looked grim for Europe as the ravages of war and an anti-colonialism mindset suggested that Europe's economies would also lightly suffer in this post-war era. A change was needed, or a return to conflict was inevitable. In 1950, French Foreign Minister Robert Schuman proposed the merging of the coal and steel industries in Europe in a bid to unite vital trade and resources in a manner which would make war not only unthinkable but materially impossible. Under the Treaty of Paris in 1952, the European coal and steel community was formed with France, Belgium, Holland, Italy, West Germany and Luxembourg. The success of the ECSE, prompted further economic integration and in 1957, the Treaty of Rome was signed, creating the EAEC and, more notably, the European Economic Community. This community created a common market amongst its member nations and sought to prevent pre-war protectionist measures by having no tariffs or impediments to the flow of labor and goods. Trade flourished under the EEC. However, when it came to making decisions, the desire for a collective consensus in this supranational organization meant that decisions were easily stalled, sometimes for years. By 1986, the EEC had expanded to include 12 nations, and member nations began to see European integration as a means to balance the sphere of influence presented by the USSR and the US. The EEC eventually passed the Single European Act, which set a target of achieving a single market by the end of 1992. With the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, Eastern Europe began to emerge from the Iron Curtain, eager to reintegrate with the rest of Europe. 1992 finally saw the adoption of the Maastricht Treaty and the formation of the European Union. Fast forward 17 years and the European Union was about to be hit by its first crisis. As a direct result of the 2008 financial recession, EU nations began to incur massive amounts of sovereign debt as they bailed out banks. This, combined with an underreportage of real debt figures, meant that the European Union was not in a position to react when it was finally hit by what would eventually be known as the Euro Crisis. Several nations were affected by this crisis, but none were hit as bad as Greece. Bailout packages from the IMF, European Commission and European Central Bank were unsuccessful in preventing Greece from sinking further into recession, bringing about speculation that the country may be forced to to leave the European Union. The European Union did see an expansion of its sphere of influence as many Eastern European nations sought to join the EU after the fall of the USSR. However, Russia began to perceive the European Union as an economic extension of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, meaning that it too was operating with an objective to contain and curtail Russian growth and influence in the European continent. This perception towards the European Union and NATO became visible during what would be known as the Ukraine crisis. The crisis began when pro-Russian President Viktor Yanukovych threw out a planned agreement with the EU. This sparked of widespread pro-EU protests across the country, eventually escalating into a full-scale revolution which overthrew the government. The crisis didn't end there as disguised Russian troops began forcibly annexing the Crimea in 2014, a region of the Ukraine which had a large population from, of Russian descent and a Russian submarine base. By 2015, tensions between NATO and Russia had reached an all-time high, but Russia continued with their illegal annexation and subsequently integrated Crimea into its federal structure regardless of the international criticism and severe stra- sanctions it wasn't long before the it wasn't long before europe faced yet another crisis this time a humanitarian one the syrian, the syrian civil war combined with the the rise of the islamic state in west asia had resulted in thousands of refugees feel, had resulted in thousands of refugees fleeing the region both by land and sea towards europe The tremendous influx of refugees brought about what would be known as the refugee crisis in 2015 and once again strained the bonds of the European Union as member states clashed on whether these refugees should be accepted and whether they fit in to the Europe program. In this episode we will be examining the effects that these multiple crises have had on Europe as well as examining what the future holds for Europe. Joining me to discuss these matters is Ambassador Neelam Deo Director at Gateway House. Ambassador, welcome back. Good to be back. One of the salient features of the European Union has been the removal of tariffs and other impediments to the movement of labour and trade. However, considering the way that the EU was impacted by the 2008 financial recession and the subsequent financial burden that it has undergone, is it acceptable to say that the prolonged economic stagnation which faces the EU now is a result of the European single market?
1: You know, the trigger of the latest uh, period of uh, stagnation was certainly the collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008 in the United States, which then spread to Europe and then eventually spread to all the developing countries as well. But the fact is that the European economy, especially Western and Northern Europe, are mature economies. They have not grown more than between 2 and 3 percent for decades well before uh, the collapse of lehman brothers and among the reasons for this are uh, that you know the populations have been aging the welfare systems are very extensive and deep uh, there is also the angle of uh, overregulated single market especially with the euro but you know it is uh, uh, differentiated fiscal policies that actually create the problem so you have a single currency but uh, you have national governments which are setting other priorities and setting fiscal policies. So uh, countries like Greece and the whole Euro crisis, uh, which coincided with the stagnation post the collapse of Lehman Brothers, uh, is uh, cannot be addressed just simply because there is only so much austerity that any country, the population of any country, can bear. But They cannot devalue their currency because they no longer have a currency and therefore the single currency is the bigger problem than the single market. A single market in fact is usually seen as an impetus to growth.
0: Another key issue for the European Union has been the freedom of labour movement and this has become an issue for some of the members. It's largely attributed to the disproportionate economic strength of Western Europe as compared to Eastern Europe, as you, as you just mentioned. In 2016, after the Brexit referendum, the UK's Office of National Statistics recorded a total of 1 million Eastern Europeans working in the UK. Considering this is one of the pillars of the single market and, has, and at the same time has been a major issue of contention among member states, what might the future hold for the movement of labour in the European Union?
1: You know, uh, different countries within Europe have different needs and they are aging at different rates. So, Italy, for instance, has been uh, not only had zero population growth for years now, but it's actually the size of its population is declining. The population of Germany has been increasing because it has had greater uh, immigration uh, inflows. But uh, when many of the East European countries post the fall of the Berlin Wall, joined the European Union, they actually did discuss and accepted, unwillingly, some level of regulation of labour mobility. The UK at that time decided not to avail of this. There were different different periods for different countries, 7 to 10 years. Uh, and uh, it said that it was open to uh, the movement of labour within uh, the European Union. So, the result was that because some of the people from Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, uh, you know, the Czech Republic, etc. weren't able to move as freely to other European countries. They all tended to concentrate towards the UK, which anyway was a vibrant economy and they uh, they were welcomed there. So the problem of labour mobility is was that when they tried to regulate it, the UK chose a different uh, position and actually did not allow a more regulated flow to take place. Now, of course, it has opted out of uh, the EU altogether because of those same labor flows that it was afraid of. The result, of course, was that the these East European countries, Poland, which has actually done well, but Romania, Bulgaria, etc., they lost their best-educated young population and actually their economies have suffered as a result. But I would think that by now, labour mobility within the European Union, after the exit of the UK, is no longer going to be a big issue. The issue has in fact become immigration from outside the European Union.
0: Ambassador, when we look at Europe, there are two main multinational bodies that stand out. There's NATO and then there's the European Union. Out of the 28 EU members, 22 of them are also members of NATO. This gives credibility to the Russian perspective that the EU is an economic extension of NATO and sa- shares a similar objective to curtail Russian growth in Europe. Now, is there a need for the European Union to distance itself from NATO? So,
1: uh, see, the way I look at it is that you know there is a near-complete overlap now between NATO and the European Union, except, obviously, the United States, which is not in the European Union. Uh, but it is uh, really uh, has more or less complete control over NATO, especially since it is funding more than 70% <coughs> of the budget of NATO. And that is also one of the reasons why Brexit created so much turbulence, because now you have the two largest economies, U.S. and U.K., out of the European Union but in NATO. Uh, other than that you have this peculiar uh, continuing problem with Turkey which is a member of NATO but not of the European Union not because it doesn't want to be and then smaller countries. Norway has always been a member of NATO but not of the European Union. Sweden and Finland are members of the European Union but not of NATO for historical reasons and their earlier relationships in uh, particularly with Russia. Now. When the Berlin Wall fell, the East European com- countries were very keen to join both NATO and the European Union. They were, in, if you wish to make a comparison, even more keen to be in NATO because of their recent history with Russia, and they saw NATO as protection against aggression from uh, Russia. But they also wanted to be in the European Union, because they saw that as the key to prosperity and to economic growth. And they were eyeing the equalization funds that the European Union provides to less developed member countries. So a country like Poland, for instance, benefited hugely and has actually done very well economically. But the criteria for joining NATO are much easier than the economic criteria required to be fulfilled for joining the European Union. Now, criteria in all of these cases were fudged for geopolitical reasons and to try and get these countries in as soon as possible. But that became the problem. The expansion of NATO, which was somehow felt by the Russians to be too rapid, but they were not in a position to do anything because they were economically weak, they were militarily weak. But they began this probing actions quite long ago with, first of all, the dif- difficulties with Georgia and then more recently with uh, Ukraine, when it looked as if Ukraine might actually begin the process of accession to the European Union. Uh, the Russians clearly acted quite rapidly, even though it is a fact that who there uh, and all the the sort of uh, activities by Western uh, uh, intelligence agencies, politicians, etc. are equally reprehensible. Uh, But for the United States, clearly it is NATO which is a much more important organization than the European Union. And so by hyping, hyping up the hostility towards Russia, which is real and genuinely felt, especially among the East European countries, it was able to ex- bring the NATO expansion almost to the borders of Russia. But Trump's election has now created a dilemma because he seemed to be indifferent to NATO. But he's, he and his various uh, advisors are, are expressing outright hostility to the European Union. Now, this is not because they particularly have something against the European Union except that they believe in nationalism, they believe in single-country
0: loyalties,
1: and therefore they are uh, uh, hostile to the European Union more than they are to NATO, which is in the end a military alliance. The other problem is that there is simultaneously the rise of right-wing political parties in Europe, and these parties are also talking about exiting the European Union, they are not talking about exiting NATO, which again is a military alliance that they themselves
0: value. Ambassador, I'm glad that you've mentioned both the United States and Turkey and their change perception towards uh, Russia because both of these key players in NATO, um, if they are changing their stance towards Russia, what does that mean for the future of NATO? You know, I think
1: that uh, uh, the effort from the Trump administration to reduce hostility towards Russia will probably continue. It may not be as dramatic as might have looked during uh, the Trump campaign when he talked about improving relations with Russia in order to especially to address the problem of ISIS in uh, Syria and Iraq. But it is the, the level of hostility has certainly gone down. Whether it will become anything more than just the lessening of hostility uh, remains to be seen. But it is already the case that ISIS has been pushed back both in Syria and in Iraq. Now, that can actually complicate the relationship, the situation and the relationships for Turkey, because Turkey has always been focused much more on the activities of the YPG, the Kurdish organization, which has also been fighting ISIS with the support of the Americans. Obviously, the Russians are not going to support an organization which has had so much support from the United States. But this is a very complicated situation for Turkey, which has a high percentage of Kurdish people within its own population. So it's murky, it's complicated, uh, it's not new. And the countries uh, have been sort of... uh, you know, uh, going around, ste- sidestepping these kinds of problems uh, for quite a long time. But it will be the referendum in Turkey in the middle of April that will actually uh, bring to a head uh, European uh, problems with Turkey, especially Germany, Netherlands, maybe a little bit France uh, and, uh, and the United States.
0: But Ambassador, keeping in mind the softening stance towards Russia, what does that mean for the significance of NATO? Does it does it compromise its relevancy in in Europe? No, I I
1: don't think so. I think that you know NATO has uh, is has been a military alliance that uh, seems to have served its purpose, keeping the Europeans together, ensuring along with the European Union that hostilities within European countries did not rise above a certain level, and uh, and every they all. The Europeans value NATO as much as they value uh, the uh, European Union, well, almost as much. But uh, I do not think that uh, improved relations between the uh, Turkey-Russia and United States triangle uh, would negatively impact NATO.
0: Europe has, in the recent past, found itself another security threat coming from West Asia in the form of ISIS. Several attacks have occurred in Europe, and the EU now has found itself in a tough position regarding its acceptance of refugees as a trickle of Islamophobia has crept in. Combined with a mindset towards non-EU and EU labour migrants, the view is that these groups pose a threat to Europeanisation, a societal objective which political parties are now keen to employ in order to preserve a desirable status quo and simultaneously prevent the financial burden of refugees what what can be expected from europe if this trend of extreme measures continues especially in election season
1: well you know it's again it's a, it's one of those dilemmas europe is an aging uh, society and aging uh, economy in that sense it needs some level of immigration to be able to sustain the very uh, comprehensive welfare systems that have been Uh, erected in these countries Uh, but they then those then become the excuse for closing the borders because of this uh, ability to say that it is foreigners who come in and benefit from the welfare systems you know this is uh, these same European countries as part of NATO and sometimes along with the United States are also responsible for creating many of the problems in the Middle East and North Africa through their invasion of Libya, through uh, their meddling, continued meddling in in, uh, Iraq, in uh, Syria, uh, through their, uh, uh, you know, now somewhat resolved hostility towards Iran. So on the one hand, they're responsible for all those problems. And then on the other, they have become the countries that receive a large number of migrants, both from the Middle East as well as from, Africa, particularly North Africa. Uh, I think uh, the, uh, the periphery of Europe, as they like to say, has been become more troubled than it used to be. Uh, there is no real solution in sight, despite the fact that the Europeans are also very generous aid givers and do try and help the economies in these countries to revise. Um, I think we will expect... Should expect to see some erosion of the Schengen visa-free entry uh, movement within Europe, as right-wing parties like Viktor Orbán in Hungary, as uh, you know Marine Le Pen in France, all of these parties become more and more influential, and I think that uh, there will be more policing of the common uh, border. Already, more funds are being, uh, you know, directed towards uh, policing. But on the other hand, many of the countries through which migrants, particularly illegal migrants, come in, like uh, Greece or like Italy, are uh, uh, the countries with weaker administrative uh, capabilities and the ability to monitor their borders.
0: Ambassador, as a follow-up to that, Europe has seen almost a form of homegrown terror in in the form of uh, of European citizens who've been ostracized by this process of europeanization they um, they've been ostracized because of their religions and for other societal uh, reasons now how is europe how can europe adequately address and curtail this form of terror
1: well many of the uh, of the terrorist activities particularly in belgium and uh, and france and i guess to a lesser extent in germany also have been uh, by homegrown uh, terrorists, so to speak, um, there are no, uh, you know, silver bullet solutions to this kind of uh, problem of marginalisation of communities in these uh, countries. Though Germany is probably less acute the problem than in France uh, and uh, and Belgium, uh, these problems o- resolve themselves usually over a longer time frame as people get better assimilated but the kind of Islamophobic uh, conversation that the politics in these countries has taken on uh, is not going to help and it is possible that there may be more uh, such incidents.
0: Ambassador, there are two really significant events for the European Union coming up in the coming week. Um, On the 25th of March, EU leaders will gather in Rome to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome. However, these celebrations may be dampened somewhat by the, by the knowledge that Theresa May will, will initiate Brexit on the 29th of March. With these two significant events coming within the same week and looking forward and looking ahead into the future, what do you believe will be the role of the European Union, if not the role of Europe in the future? Um, you know, uh,
1: Europe has really turned inward. And uh, Brexit came as a shock, uh, even though you have the same kind of phenomenon of anti-EU right-wing parties in uh, other European countries. So it should have been anticipated much more than it actually was. Um, I think, uh, you know, Europe will certainly uh, have to choose between continuing with talk of more union, or some kind of period like a holiday, so as to consolidate the union that has already uh, taken place. Uh, Europe has to become more generous as with its uh, with the countries in its periphery, because even though it is an aid giver uh, and has been for many years, uh, it makes demands which uh, emerging democracies, developing economies, are simply unable to fulfill. So some, very often the aid that it extends and the help that it tries to give uh, just becomes uh, uh, infructuous, unutilizable. The other big problem that Europe uh, is facing and will likely continue to face is this rise of uh, uh, religion in political affairs. Uh, Being Islamophobic, of course, has the converse effect of people pledging much more loyalty to their uh, Christian uh, uh, identity. So it is unnecessarily setting this in a hostile frame, and Europe will have to deal with that, because that is the crossroads where the two religions have merged and where the number of uh, Muslim citizens is uh, growing. Uh, But I would say that it is... uh, um, Too too soon and in many ways short sighted to try to write off Europe. But Europe will no longer be as significant in global affairs as it used to be because other countries have emerged and uh, become more, gradually becoming more significant economically and otherwise.
0: Thank you for your time, Ambassador Deo. Thank you. Next week on the New World Order, the first part of the rise of China. You've been listening to The New World Order, a podcast series by Gateway House which observes, defines and seeks to understand the changing political trends across the world.